A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheißbare Brüder in America. So tauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has once again been generously sponsored by Yorucha. Yorucha is a program created for business people to be able to study the halachas of the workplace at a very practical, relevant, and applicable level, available and accessible on many platforms, consists of all kinds of um classes and Mara McCoymas and videos and audio and everything, you can sign up on the website basehavaad.org slash Yorucha. There's more information there on the website or by emailing Yorucha at basehavaad.org. Of course, I will post the information on Jewish History Soundbites uh, platforms as well. So sign up today. If you're a businessman, this is a program that you can change your life. And don't forget to join up. So we're going to speak about the uh, very exciting story that had a huge impact on the Jewish world well beyond the uh, relatively small event that it was. Um, The 1935 election to the chief rabbinate of Tel Aviv in pre-state Israel, mandatory Palestine. And speaking of elections, we actually have Another sponsor here, um, the Teach Coalition. You know, Election Day in the United States is around the corner. And it's time to drop the excuses and vote when it comes to state funding for our schools and communities. State and local elected officials pay close attention to the people and the communities who vote. And it actually doesn't matter which candidate you vote for. The idea is that the community is a voting community. It's very simple. If you don't vote, you diminish your choice and the needs of our community can be discounted. You have less than 10 days until Election Day. Make sure you return your mail-in ballot or vote early or go to the polls on Election Day. If you have questions or need help with your voter plan in New York, New Jersey, Florida, or Pennsylvania, you can call or email Teach Coalition's voting expert at 201-937-8442. Or you can email at huttb at teachcoalition.org or go to their website at teachcoalition.org slash vote. Every vote in the Frum community matters and that's why Teach Coalition, 
our community's advocate for fair government funding of non-public school schools is encu- is encouraging us to vote. So get out there and do your your uh, democratic uh, civil uh, duty, and you can connect to the great history of of um, of voting and democracy. You know, Jews over the history have been you know getting trying to get emancipation. We can do a whole series on emancipation, trying to get the vote for hundreds of years. And they fought for it in the 19th century and the 18th century. You, know, you finally have the opportunity. You might as well go ahead and use it. And you're connecting to a great uh, historical story and episode in Jewish history. You're continuing that legacy of emancipated Jews going ahead and voting. Either way, so this was not a, uh, an election for, um, for government. It was a, an election for the chief rabbinate and, and the... Uh, Citizens of Tel Aviv did not have the vote. It was a special committee that was established to be able to uh, appoint a new rabbi for Tel Aviv. So just to give a little bit of background as to what was going on and why it's such an important story, it's seemingly such a minor or insignificant event. It was actually a formidable event for many reasons. We'll try to examine a few of them. Um, Some of them unrelated, actually. Uh, When taken together... Uh, as expressed through this saga, it, it is kind of like a watershed uh, uh, um, story in the annals of both the Yishuv, the developing Yishuv in Israel at the time. It was a Palestine at the time, and it had a you know an effect in in other countries as well, in the United States and other places as well. So the context is is that we're in the new Yishuv. Tel Aviv symbolizes the new Yishuv. 1935. Tel Aviv is 26 years old. It was started in 1909. And there's the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim and in the other old cities. And then there's the new settlements. And Tel Aviv is already a city, and it's kind of like the capital of the new Yishuv. Tel Aviv is growing by leaps and bounds. The economy in general in mandatory Palestine is booming. The British are developing it. These the, um, the new settlements, and there's agriculture, and there's industry. And and the British recognized within the Jewish community what was called Knesset Yisrael, the official Jewish community, the Kahal, recognized by the British uh, government authorities, and a, the institution of the rabbinate, the institution of the chief rabbinate. It served the needs of the British as it did as it served the needs of of every single country where Jews lived around the world. The non-Jewish authorities always wanted to have an organized Jewish community. The Jewish minority, wherever they lived, was always organized, and they recognized the institution of the rabbinate. So from the British perspective, the chief rabbinate made sense as an institution, and and in any prominent city like Tel Aviv, there should be a chief rabbi. From the Zionist perspective, it also made sense to have it, and the, the way they saw it was, again, the Zionist movement was primarily secular, so what did they need a chief rabbi for? But they understood that both as a matter of tradition and in all the communities that they had come from in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe, there was uh, religious needs, there was a traditional uh, continuity of the Jewish people, there was certain minimal parts of marriage and divorce and other, other aspects of Jewish life that, uh, you know, and, and, as to, and in addition to all that, the, the Zionist uh, perspective, the Jewish agency, the, the, uh, the, the official institutions of political Zionism that was active in, in Israel at the time, um, saw the institution of the chief rabbinate as also establishing, as another manifestation 
of Jewish sovereignty um, in Israel under the British mandate. Um, and then there's the religious perspective. And from the religious perspective, it was important to have um, you know, reliable, good, uh, prestigious rabbis so that the you know, religious life can be maintained, not only maintained, but further developed, and it could flourish, uh, and especially in areas like the new Yishuv, in the old Yishuv, there was the established religious community, but in places like the New Yishev, it was important that there would be you know, strong uh, religious leaders, rabbis uh, in charge, so that there could be a semblance of Jewish life, and uh, not only a semblance, but it could actually be developed and enhanced and flourished. So that's, that's how everyone sees the chief rabbi, especially in a place like Tel Aviv. Now, 1935, again, it's uh, years before there's any state of Israel. This is regular British mandatory Palestine. This is before the war, just so we get an idea. So who exactly votes in this election? So there was 42 voters. It was committees. Um, actually, 41 ended up voting, but it was officially 42 voters. 21 of them, in other words, 50% of the voters, they were, were um, shul representatives of Tel Aviv, which also makes sense. There was, you know, Loads of shuls, much more than 21, um, probably tens, perhaps uh, over 100 by then. It was a, a huge amount of small little shuls dotting every area of Tel Aviv. There was already the great synagogue in, on Allenby Street. It was already you know, the most prominent shul. That's where the chief rabbi davened. Um, but there was loads of other shuls as well. There was you know, Hasidish Shtiblach, and there was Rebbe's living there, and there was all kinds of, of shuls in Tel Aviv. But the more prominent shuls and politically affiliated, so 21 of them were allowed to send a representative um, to vote in this election, which I'm going to get back to. There's a reason I'm emphasizing it. The other 21 were related to the to the area, to the municipality um, authorities, and they were you know, different committees who were voting on this, uh, on this chief rabbinate. So... What happened in 1935 that they needed a new election? So their predecessor was a very uh, important rabbi, a beloved rabbi, Reb Shloima Aronson, who was the first Ashkenazic uh, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He had become the rabbi in 1923. So again, Tel Aviv is founded in, in 1909. So for the first um, 15 years or so, uh, there's no rabbi. So 1923, he becomes uh, um, the first there were rabbis in Yafo, and Tel Aviv is, is, is built in the sand dunes outside of Yafo. Yafo was an ancient city. Um, uh, Rav Cook was a rabbi in Yafo, and in fact, the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and we talk about the, 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 this whole thing is, is like a, an Ashkenazic story, there was another rabbi in Tel Aviv, a very, very prestigious rabbi, actually, Rabinsian Mayor Chai Uziel, who later on became the chief rabbi. And, uh, and uh, he was the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, became the rabbi at the same time, 1923. And he had previously been a rabbi in Yafo, he was also a rabbi in Greece. And either way, in 1923, becomes the chief rabbi in Tel Aviv. Um, but the uh, Ashkenazic chief rabbi was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Shleim Aronson, who had passed away in 1935. Now, Rabbi Shleim Aronson had grown up in a, in a Hasidic home, he was a Lubavitcher, a Chabad Chassid, actually. Uh, um, um, and and he, he went to yeshiva in, in Liadi, and he um, had been a rabbi in, in Russia. He was a rabbi, actually, in Kiev, a you know, big city in Russia. 
And he was, in fact, the rabbi there during the infamous Mendel Bayless trial. So he was involved in the defense team for Mendel Bayless during the Kiev uh, trial. He was there during World War I helping refugees. And he was already an important rabbi, he was an older rabbi in, in Russia when he uh, came to Israel to become the rabbi in Tel Aviv. Now, he was a, a Zionist. He was involved in the movement early on, way before there was any Mizrahi. He was already a prominent rabbi. He joined the Zionist movement before there was even a Mizrahi party. So he was involved in Zionism from early on. He, he was you know, a, a person who was very involved with the Jewish secular intellectuals of his day. He corresponded with Shalom Aleichem, and in, within the Zionist movement, he corresponded with Achar Ha'am and Moshe Leib Lillianblum and others. So he was a, a, a part of the Zionist endeavor. And then when Mizrahi was founded, he joined the Mizrahi as well. So Rabbi Shleim Aronson, uh, you know, he was the first chief rabbi, and it made sense. His grandson, actually, who was his namesake, Shlomo Aronson, Professor Shlomo Aronson, was a prominent historian at Hebrew University. He just passed away a few months ago. Um, so he's... That was Rishlema Aronson. So you're looking for someone to fill his shoes. So there's all kinds of candidates and their supporters. And um, one of the candidates was, uh, for instance, let me pull pull up pull it up here. Uh, one of the candidates was uh, was they had a whole whole list of candidates. One of them was the Reb Shmuel Brut, who was. One of the heads of the Mizrahi in Poland, he actually represented the Mizrahi in the Polish Parliament. Um, one of the rep, one of the rep, one of the uh, candidates for a short time was Rav Hoffman from the Rav Frankfurt, who was also part of the Mizrahi. Um, they even even Yisus Shleimah Kahanaman from uh, from Panovich was even considered uh, as a candidate. And um, Rabbi Yitzchak Rubinstein, who was also part of the Mizrahi, the, the rabbi in Vilna, which is also a great story, and also a member of the uh, Lithuanian parliament, all of these were considered, but it ended up being three primary candidates after, after the dust settled. And I have to also understand the chronology of the events here. The Rev. Shlem Aronson passed away in March 1935. His eventual successor, who ended up being Ramesh Avigdor Amiel, he became, he was installed and elected as the rabbi in November. So between March and November is when our story takes place. And the three candidates that became the most likely candidates were, um, of course, Ramesh Avigdor Amiel, who, who eventually won. And we'll get to him in a second. Rabbi Isaac Kalevi Herzog, who later became famous as the as the uh, chief rabbi of the of Eretz Yisrael after the passing of Rav Cook, which is also part of our story because it happened during this time, um, and and uh, and he was then the rabbi in, in Ireland. He's the chief rabbi of Ireland he's in Dublin, and the third candidate was much younger than the first two, was Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who later comes known as the famous Rav Soloveitchik. Of uh, then he was just. The rabbi, the young rabbi in Boston, he had arrived only a couple of years before. Later on, he would replace his father as the Rosh Hashiva Rabbi Yitzchak and the leader of one of the great Torah leaders of the last generation, of the last century, and you know the f- father and architect of modern orthodoxy. But then he was 
he was much younger, and his his he was famous because he was a Soloveitchik. His father was a major Soloveitchik, and his grandfather was a Chaim. But he he was the uh, the other candidate. So so again, so you know, let's 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 talk about. So who's Ramesha Vigdor Amiel? Who's how did how did he how does he become the candidate? Who is he altogether? So he was uh, from from Lithuania. He grew up near Grodna. And he goes at a very young age to study in the Tells Yeshiva. Laser Gordon, Rav Shimon Shkup was still there. He was a student of Rav Shimon Shkup and, and, uh, and Rav Laser Gordon. And, and uh, so he's in Tells for several years. He spent a bit of time studying under Rav Chaim Brisker. Um, it was after Velazhin closed, so it wasn't exactly in a formal Yeshiva setting. But later on, he was also part of what came to be known as the Kibbutz of Rav Chaim Eizer, Rav Chaim Eizer Grzynski who was then a young uh, Rav and Dayan in Vilna, he opened a kibbutz after the closing of Alajan, where he had a group of elite students for several years. He managed this kibbutz, and uh, Ramesh Avigdor Amil was a student of Rav Chaim Eizer during that time in his kibbutz in Vilna. And he started racking up the smichas. He got a smicha from the Cheshik Shleima, one of the great rabbis of Shleima HaKayin of, of Vilna. Then he got a smicha from the Arsameach of Dvinsk, and um, and of the of, uh, of of other other great rabbis, he got several smichas. He was um, a um, he got from the Kovner of Rabbi Tzvi Rabinovich, the son of Rabbi Tzikolchanan, and and a bunch of also from the Ragatchaver, Yosef Rosen, and Dvinsky. He got from both rabbis there. So he was he was all smichad up, and he becomes the rabbi in Shvinsyan, which ironically was the first rabbinical position many years earlier of. The founder of the Mizrahi, Yugisakak of Rhinus. So here, Ramesh Avigdar Amil, who had joined the Mizrahi, also um, was a rabbi in Shvinsian. And he had a yeshiva there, and, um, and he, uh, he was the rabbi there for several years. He becomes very prominent in the Mizrahi, one of the leaders of the world Mizrahi, and eventually becomes the rabbi in Antwerp following World War I. So he becomes a rabbi for quite a few years, and he he started a yeshiva there. He started a boys' cheder. He started a girls' school, actually, in the 1920s. Again, we, in my other series that we're discussing, how girls' education was, uh, was not exclusive to Sarashnir and Beis Yaakov. So, so here is another example of that here. The other side of Europe, in Antwerp, during the 1920s, um, Rav Moshe Avigdor Amil, in Antwerp, he started a girls' school for for the yeshiva, for 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 the Antwerp Jewish community. Either way, so he he was very influential there, and he's one of the leading candidates to become the rabbi. Rav Herzog, who eventually becomes the chief rabbi of the whole Israel, he's also uh, a candidate. Now, what's interesting about it is that that the the fact that he lost to Rav Moshe Avigdor Amil has a major impact. Uh, why? Because in between Rav Shleim Aaron's passing and the election of Rav Moshe Avigdor Amiel, so there's the passing of Rav Kook. Rav Kook passed away in September. The election was in November. And soon they're looking for a chief rabbi for the whole land of Israel, not just for Tel Aviv. And Rav Herzog, who lost the election in Tel Aviv, he becomes the chief rabbi who replaces Rav Kook. Had he won the Tel Aviv election, it's unlikely that they would have uh, looked to him to after he just become the rabbi of Tel Aviv to a couple of months later to vote him in to become the chief rabbi of Israel. So that also has 
an interesting uh, twist to the story. So, in any event, um, before we get get to the whole story with Rav Soloveitchik, I just want to uh, point out a, a few in- <laughs> a couple of interesting things about the 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 candidacy of Ramesh Avigdor Amiel, who won, is that his candidacy was pushed by the Mizrahi. Um, Rav Soloveitchik was not affiliated at all with the Mizrahi at the time. Um, he, he, could, he even had an affiliation with the Aguda, which was, you know, which is on the other side of the spectrum. Um, the Rabbi Hudaleib Fishman, who was the head of the Mizrahi in Israel at the time, he is the one who nominates him and pushes the candidacy. But the one really who's really working behind the scenes here, pushing forth his candidacy, was Mayor Barilan, the youngest son of the Nasiv, who was also a prominent leader in the Mizrahi. And Rameir Barilan did not want Rav Soloveitchik. First of all, he wanted someone who was more openly Zionistic. He wanted someone who was a card-carrying member and a leader in the Mizrahi. And he also felt that he wanted someone who was older, um, not as charismatic, not as dynamic. And he thought, thought that Rav Soloveitchik saw him as a bit of a threat also. He's young. He's, he's going to, you know, not, not someone who would be controlled easily. So, so Rameer Barilan definitely wanted to push that Amil should become the rabbi, and he worked, lobbied very hard for his, his candidacy. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes uh, also. By the way, Rabbi Amil, his great-granddaughter is a lady by the name of Lihi Lapid, and her husband is a fellow by the name of Yair Lapid. So, so there, the Lapid children are great-great-grandchildren of the, the uh, famed chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, Ramesha Vigdor Amil, which is also a bit of an irony uh, of history. Now, when Ramesha Vigdor, he's, he's only uh, the rabbi for about 10 years. He passes away in 1945. He's succeeded by Rabister Yehuda Unterman, uh, later became the chief rabbi of Israel, also a Talmud of Shimon Shkup. And later on, there was other famous rabbis in Tel Aviv, Rabbi Tzlaki Didya Frankel, and there was a Polish rabbi, a Hasidic rabbi, and... And uh, there's a lot, a lot of others. Ravad Yosef was one of the Svartek chief rabbis of Tel Aviv. In general, the Tel Aviv rabbinate and its personalities are a great topic because there are so many famous and interesting people who were rabbis there. But what I, I want to talk about for a few minutes is uh, both um, Rav Soloveitchik's candidacy and also how the voting uh, took place and was carried out. Um, there's also an interesting story there. So Rav Soloveitchik made his one and only visit to Israel during this time. Again, it's March, the saga starts. Rav Soloveitchik arrives in Israel for his candidacy. He's trying to get the job. He's here for several months, for two, three, four months or so in, uh, in the summer. He comes in late spring, um, and, he, uh, and he stays through the summer um, um, uh, to, 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 you know, to work on his candidacy as, as the rabbi. Now, when he's there, he, he, um, he gave a shear, delivered a shear, in the Yeshiva Merkaz Harav, which became a legendary uh, event. Um, you know, Ramesh Tzvineria, who was, who was present at the time, he said it was like having a taste of Alajan. We finally, us living in Israel, got to see what the glory of Alajan was, got to hear what Reb Chaim Brisker must have sounded like. In fact, Rav Cook, who was ailing, who was sick, it was, it was dying really, it was just shortly before his passing, um, he told his son, Cook to follow Rav Soloveitchik around and listen to him speak, because he said he wanted he wanted he wants him to get a taste of what Reb Chaim Brisker was like. 
and uh, this is the closest he'll get. In fact, the there was a sign, uh, and someone sent me a a a, a advertisement put out in the in the local newspapers that Rav Salvechik is arriving, and all alumni of the Valazhin Yeshiva and all of the former residents of Brisk should are going to should come to this Maitzei Shabbos Malava Malka get together to receive the. The grandson of Reb Chaim Brisker of Soloveitchik, who's now a chief rabbi in Boston, and they should all come to greet him. So it made a tremendous impression. By the way, this was Reb Soloveitchik's only visit to Israel. In general, it's interesting. I was thinking about it. There's quite a few really prominent uh, Jewish leaders who did not make uh, regular visits to Israel. You know that the Reb Moshe Feinstein also made only one visit to Israel. He came in 1964 for the Knesset Gadol of Israel. That was his only visit. And Rav Soloveitchik came also on a technicality to, for his candidacy as the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. The Lubavitcher Rebbe never came. Um, Rav Victor Miller never came. You know, not doesn't necessarily, you know, a Torah leader didn't have to mean that you made regular visits. On the other hand, the Satmar Rav, who was, you know, the big anti-Zionist, he made several visits. He even lived there for a year and a half. He made five or six visits. So, you know, political ideology and visiting are not uh, interrelated. That's, you know, just a side point. Um, in, in the end, of course, Rav Salvejic did not win. Um, he, 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 in, in 1959, many years later, he was actually offered the chief rabbinate of Israel. This time, he's the one who refused. And um, it has nothing to do with the fact that his, his, um, his uncle, the Briskarov, was in Eretz Yisrael at the time. Um, and he was nervous about what he would say, and as far as I know, it had nothing to do with that. I think that's a myth. Um, but he, he was already settled in his positions in the United States. He had been the rabbi in Boston for many years, and he was, uh, you know, very actively involved in 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 Rabbeinu YU, and in building uh, Yiddishkeit and Orthodoxy in America. And also, his model for a rabbi was his grandfather, Reb Chaim Brisker, and his rabbinate in Brisk and. That meant being a real rabbi and taking care of people and shepherding his flock. And over the years, by the time the end of the 1950s came, he had seen what the chief rabbinate was, and it was a very ceremonial role. And uh, he, that wasn't for him. He said that's not uh, to be just a ceremonial rabbi and not a true leader of a community, of people, of human beings, of taking care of people. That's not, that's not uh, you know, if he wants to become a rabbi, he's going to become a rabbi like his grandfather, Abchayim. And, and I guess we could say that he was a bit of a prophet too, because uh, we see how it's been borne out over the last few generations. That you know, it's a very the chief rabbinate is a very ceremonial position, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, somewhat a superficial role. Um, not to minimize the great people who have filled that role, but um, the, the the role itself, the office itself, is largely um, ceremonial. Um, while Rav, while Rav Salvechik was here, he met with Rav Cook. He met with Rav Cook, and it made, it made an impression on him. As a, as as a, Rav Cook was sick, and you know, in his last, it was his last weeks. It was literally shortly before his passing. Um, but he said, uh, Rav, Rav Salvechik said he met many great rabbis over his life, and Rav Cook was definitely unique. He's very, definitely very different than anyone else we had met. Um, he spoke, he referred several times later on in his life to that meeting and, and what an impression it made on him. Now, when Rav Soloveitchik arrived back, his father, Amisha Soloveitchik, uh, didn't rest 
he wanted to push his son's candidacy, and he went ahead and wrote a letter to the Tel Aviv people to push his son's candidacy. And he writes there about how his father, Abchaim, um, uh, you know, was very impressed with his grandson and what a great uh, Torah scholar he is. And he said that the Kovnerov attested to his son's Torah scholarship. And he said that this is, this is the guy you want. And he said, you know, he has, he has a general knowledge. He graduated with a doctorate from the University of Berlin. And he uses that as a selling point. He emphasizes how much he knows and how many languages he knows. And he says, a city like Tel Aviv has many factions. It has to have a leader who, who can reach out to every type of person. And that's my son. And then he, he writes there, and you know, someone sent me an English translation of the letter that's online. And he said, all of the Jewish nation looks up to Tel Aviv and takes note of what happens there. This is 1935. And he goes on to say, uh, of course, its rabbi must be the greatest man in our generation, someone truly outstanding and exceptional, whose influence can also reach the diaspora. And he says, of course, my son is the one who, who uh, fits that description, and, and that's who you should take. Um, he says, you think he's too young, he's not too young, he's already in his 30s, it's not considered too young. Either way, he goes on and on and on to try to push his, his son's candidacy. It's fascinating of all this going behind the scenes of trying to see who would who would win. Now, from a totally different angle, what I want to speak about just for a couple of minutes, already going over time here, but it's a very interesting story, um, is the role of, or non-role eventually, that took place from the very young and nascent uh, organization called Poyale Agudis Yisrael. Poyale Agudis Yisrael, which is itself a great story, and there's actually two parts of the story. There's Poyale Agudis Yisrael, in Poland, and there's Poyale Agudis Yisrael in Israel, and it's two separate stories, it's almost not even related, um, and two fascinating ones, I hope to get to them uh, in the future, but here we have this new organization, it's run by Benjamin Minz, and Yaakov Landvi, and Zev Fischer-Shane, and, and, they, and they're young guys in Tel Aviv, and they're trying to define themselves as different from the Agudis Yisrael in the old Yishuv run by Rabbi Moshe Bloy and Rabbi Yisri Dushinsky. And here, and one of the ways they do it eventually is by redefining it as Payale Agudis Yisrael, not regular Agudis Yisrael. Um, but here it's still in its early embryonic uh, stages. And they want to know, they've been invited by, like I told you, there was 21 shul representatives, so the Payale Agudis Yisrael shul was invited to send their representative to the place to to cast a ballot and vote. And, you know, the voting was done in, in, in a literally in a room in Tel Aviv. It took 45 minutes. It started at 8.30 at night. And 9.15, they already counted all the ballots, and they announced uh, the winner. Um, so so Paila Gadistrol was invited to take part in that process. And... It's for the chief rabbinate. The chief rabbinate is part of Knesset Yisrael, the official recognized Jewish community recognized by the British government, which is affiliated with the Zionist establishment. And Agudis Yisrael at that time, especially in the Agudis Yisrael position of Eretz Yisrael, which Rabbi Moshe Bloy was in charge, was a separatist movement that they forbade their members from being members in the Knesset Yisrael official Jewish community because it participated and cooperated with the Zionist establishment, and that was something that Agudis Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael was very opposed to at that time. So how can they go ahead and Pahil Agudis Yisrael acting in the name 
of Agudas Yisrael, how can they go ahead and do and participate in the elections? And they didn't know what to do. And here they send this letter, um, fascinating, Zev Fisher Shane, he, one of the leaders, he sends this letter in, in, uh, in October, literally just a couple of weeks before the election. And, and he says there, he sends it to the Ger Rebbe. Another quirk to this whole story is that the Ger Rebbe, the Imramis, or Ram Mordechai Alter, the great leader of Polish Jewry, he was visiting Israel at the time. He was there. He was in Yerushalayim. And Zev Fischer, Shane, and Biyaman Mintz, two of the leaders of, of, the, of the PAI, the Pele Godes Yisrael, were Gerach Hasidim. They were close, you know, they knew the Rebbe. So they decide to ask, he decides to ask his advice. And, he's, and he describes in there, and here it's, it, you get to see the whole entire hierarchy of Agudis Yisrael, the whole problem of that hierarchy and rabbinic authority, and, and what Payal Agudis Yisrael, how they see themselves in this organization. And, and he describes there how they already asked Yaakov Rosenheim, who was the world leader of Agudis Yisrael in Frankfurt, a layman, about what they should do. And they're not going to get the answer in time, but they write there that even if they do get the answer in time, they're assuming that Yaakov Rosenheim is just going to tell them to ask Rav Dushinsky. But they don't want to ask Rav Dushinsky because Rav Dushinsky is, in con- is controlled by the zealots, by the Kanoim of Yerushalayim, meaning Rav Moshe Bloy. And he said, we were planning on participating in this election because it's very important for us. You have to understand that religious life in Tel Aviv and budgets and religious needs, and all kinds of things. is It's almost impossible to get anything done uh, if we don't cooperate with the chief rabbinate here. It's going to further religious Jewish life. It's going to help build Jewish religious life in Tel Aviv. And if we don't cooperate with the chief rabbinate, we can't get anything done. And when, and when Rabbi Moshe Bloy in Yerushalayim heard that we're planning on participating in this election, he went crazy. He sent us a letter and he said, how dare you? You're not allowed to participate, and Agudas Yisrael doesn't recognize these elections, and it's part of the Zionist establishment, and don't you dare, and you're under my authority because you are part of Agudas Yisrael, and I am in charge of Agudas Yisrael in this country. And they say that, so now we can't ask Rav Dushinsky, because Rav Dushinsky is is controlled by Rav Moshe Bloy. So we decided we're going to ask you. You're the Ger Rebbe. You're in charge of the Agudis Yisrael in Poland, and you're one of the most respected members of the Mayatzis Gedele HaTorah. In reality, he was, you know, whatever the Ger Rebbe said went. He was, he was really in charge. So what they were doing is they were circumventing all the authority by going straight to the top, and they felt comfortable doing so since they were a Ger Hasidim. And they were hoping to get a more lenient opinion to allow them to vote. Unfortunately, the Ger Rebbe, for them, the Ger Rebbe said, no, you shouldn't vote. He doesn't want to rock the boat. Whatever the official policy is in, in Israel, that's what it is. And the Poyalagari Yisrael had to inform the committee that they're declining the invitation and they should ask a different shul representative. Uh, subsequently, the Poyalagari Yisrael was able to still work with the chief rabbinate and they had a working relationship with Rabbi Shavig Amiel. But that is another uh, angle of the story, is how is Agudis Yisrael developing at the time, and what's their relationship uh, via the uh, Zionist establishment, including the chief rabbinate. So that's the story of the 1935 chief rabbinate of Tel Aviv election, in a few angles of it. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Of course, you check out Yorucha 
and um, and get uh, and get involved in um, in that in that program as well. And um, you can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.